What does it mean to be a man in the 21st century? What can we learn from people who study and work with men? Why does focusing on masculinity matter? These are some of the questions we are here to answer. I'm Alex Bove, inviting you to talk like a man. All right, everybody, welcome to Talk Like a Man. We have uh, one thing I have to say before we get started tonight. Uh, it is a dark and stormy night, <laughs> literally, <laughs> here in Philadelphia. Uh, so you may hear a little bit of thunder and lightning in the background. That is not Nathan Caruno's awesome sound effects. That is actual, real thunder and lightning. So uh, I guess apologies for that, but uh, just bear with us as we do that. My guest tonight is Al Vernacchio. Uh, Al's day job is teacher and sexuality educator at Friends Central School outside of Philadelphia, as well as a faculty advisor for that school's Gender and Sexual Orientation Alliance. And his superhero job, uh, you may have heard him uh, on one of his TED Talks, or maybe you heard him on NPR, or I hope you read his book, bought and read his book, For Goodness Sex, Changing the Way We Talk to Young People About Sexuality, Values, and Health. Uh, Al earned a BA in theology from St. Joseph's University and an MSED in human sexuality education from the University of Pennsylvania. I believe that's the same program that became Widener's program. It is. He and his husband, Michael, live here in Philadelphia. So thank you so much for being with us, Al. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh I hope we will go to far-reaching places, but I'd like to start just by hearing uh, a little bit about the, I guess I want to focus on adolescence mm -hmm. and mostly adolescent boys, but adolescent masculinity, right? We don't have to um, say, adolescent masculinity crops up in all different kinds of sure. people. Um, so, um, well, first of all, could you just talk a little bit more about what specifically you do at Friends? Sure. My official title is I'm the nursery through 12th grade sexuality education coordinator. So I'm responsible for programming and teaching sexuality education to everyone from our youngest students who are three years old in nursery school, all the way up to our oldest students who are 18 years old and finishing high school. Um, most of the classes that I teach are in the high school. Uh, but I do uh, substantial programming in our middle school and our lower school as well. Hmm. Um, so that keeps me busy. I also do parent education, faculty education, and, and basically called upon whenever there is an issue that involves um, sexuality or healthy sexuality or some breach of healthy sexuality that happens in the school. And I get called in to consult about that. Um, and then I also uh, speak around the country about all kinds of issues around healthy sexuality, especially helping young people develop healthy sexuality and helping adults um, help young people navigate that process. Hmm. And your school, did, did, did you develop the curriculum within the school? or I did. The school had a, a pretty basic health curriculum, and, and it still does. Um, when I was hired at the school, I was actually hired as a full-time English teacher because that's where my certification is. Hmm. Um, but I came to the school with the master's degree in human sexuality, and I asked in my interview if uh, they thought they might be able to make use of that degree. And they said, sure, well, why don't you sort of look around and do an informal needs assessment and see what you think? And so I'll start my 22nd year at the school this September, 
And over those 22 years, I have sort of piece by piece built a uh, sexuality education program that covers all the divisions. Um, it started in the high school and then expanded um, downward to the younger kids. Hmm. Um, and what was the, what were, could you talk a little bit about, like, uh, were there other curricula that influenced you or sort of how oh, did, sure. you know? Yeah, I mean, clearly the, the biggest influence was my graduate school program um, where, you know, being trained in specifically in human sexuality education is a is a pretty it's a pretty small field. Mm -hmm. Because of that, you can really have access to, um, you know, my word is giants in the field, people who are really on the front line, who are doing cutting edge stuff. They're the people who become your teachers. And so people like Connie McCaffrey and people like Ken George and Bill Staten, um, people who uh, really molded me into the educator I am in terms of teaching me really sound educational theory and practice, but also people who influenced the way that I look at human sexuality um, and the way I've looked at my own sexuality as I've, as I've um, gone through my life and as I've looked back over my life. Um, so certainly grad school was the thing that was the most influential. In terms of other curricula, I really believe that the best curricula in any kind of setting, whether it's school-based or community-based, comes from really knowing the kids and the community that you're serving. Um, so I created a curriculum based upon the population that I serve at Friends Central School. People have often asked me why I don't publish a curriculum. And it's because I, I don't, I think when you publish a curriculum, you're publishing something that reaches uh, a general audience, but it always needs to be shaped. And I think if somebody would walk in and say, I can just teach the lessons that you teach, it actually wouldn't be the same. Mm -hmm. So um, so I, while I look at a lot of curricula, and, and while certainly I'm always looking at resources online and always trying to keep myself updated with what's out there and, and what's new and fresh and what are new ways to talk about these topics that we've all been talking about for decades, um, I think the the best education comes from an authentic relationship with the students that you're serving and the community that you're serving and creating something that really um, sits right where they are. Um, so yes, I'm influenced by a lot of things, but it always has my my spin on it when I'm finished with it. And then I imagine it's, it's, it's constantly, well, not constantly, but it's changing because... Adolescents well, are changing. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting because um, adolescents are asking me the same questions today that they asked me 20 years ago. You know, they, yes, some things have changed. You know, social media, mm -hmm. the online access, that, that's, that's a huge game changer. But every kid still wants to know, is my body normal? Every kid still wants to know, you know, what's the right time to start being sexually active? Every kid still wants to know, um, you know, what, what should I aspire to in terms of, in terms of identifying as a, as a man or as a woman? And of course, today, one of the exciting things is there are so many other ways that kids are identifying. So uh, gender identity and sexual orientation and romantic orientation, the ways of identifying that have just exploded in the last, you know, what, 10 years. Um, and that's been really thrilling because it's, it's caused me to think about um, 
my own definitions of masculinity, for example, and femininity, and and always finding ways to move out of that binary box and to be as inclusive as I can be when talking to these kids, because you know the the possibilities for who they will become and who they are finding themselves to be um, are so much more expansive today. And I have to be able to let them know that, uh, that all of all those are possible, that all of those are valid ways to, to identify who they are and who they want to be. Um, so in some ways, the job has expanded um, pretty exponentially. Um, and of course, you know, with, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, but with things like, you know, the online world, um, the, the way kids are getting information, the way they're understanding information, and the way we're interacting with kids um, is, is changing pretty dramatically. Yeah, I'm thinking actually that, and that ties into what you were saying. I mean, how, how, do, how do kids become aware of all, these, all this possible range of identities? Some of that is from their peer groups. Some of that might be from educators if they're lucky enough to be in your classes. <laughs> um, you. But a lot of that, I think, has got to be from social media, from you know what they're seeing on maybe YouTube, sure. in the best corners of YouTube, <laughs> yeah. yeah, or in the worst corners of YouTube sometimes, <laughs> right? And I, you know, often it's a kid who'll come in with a question. You know, I've saw this word demisexual. I don't know what it means. Um, how would how would you define that? What does it mean? Um, and so we can have a conversation about that. And and I also have to be um, humble enough to be able to say to kids, you know, that's a term I haven't heard before. Either let's look it up together, let me go and see what I can find, or why don't you tell me what you understand that to mean, and then, um, and then I can sort of go from there, and we can we can fill in gaps that need to be filled in. Uh, so it's really a um, this collaborative and interactive exchange that I think is best. Long gone are the days where I can walk into a room of kids and simply. Um, convey information to them. You know, that doesn't work anymore. Yeah. I, uh, they're way too savvy. No, I can't do that. I can't do that <laughs> either, of course. I, I remember actually it was one of my students who who told me who Jordan Peterson was. Yeah. I didn't even know Jordan Peterson was. And my student came in because we were studying gender and he said, have you heard of Jordan Peterson? What do you think about him? And I said, uh, I'll go look that up and get back to you. <laughs> and then I went and then I went home and I looked it up and I read his, some of his things and watched some of his things. And then I talked to the student about how I felt and, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. Um, so le- I, this podcast focuses on masculinity yep. and I was curious, one of the questions that's come up a couple of times in interviews that I've had is, do you believe, and I've been asked this myself, you know, do you believe that masculinity is changing for, for, you know, the, let's use the cliche, the next generation. Sure. Do you think it's really changing much? Are you seeing it changing much? F- from my perspective and my experience, um, I don't see it changing. I see certain aspects of it being reinforced and highlighted. But I think that the, the challenge and the struggle and the adventure of... of of identifying as a man and understanding what masculinity is um, has always been uh, a really big and open and important question. And I think um, in in decades past, maybe a lot more was assumed. So I think today, maybe the difference is 
that we have more latitude, not full latitude still, but some more latitude to question, you know, what is this thing called masculinity and what does it look like and, um, and what is my place in it? Um, and I think that it is very challenging to be, to be a young person today who, um, is, is male bodied and, and identifies as, as a young man, um, trying to figure out, uh, what it, what is the role in society where I think whereas previously a lot of the information that that young guys would get is you know you're sort of top of the heap mm-hmm. and I think that message is not as ubiquitous as it was and so I do think that causes um, some introspection I think it also causes a lot of reaction in in young guys um, and so I think that's that's one of the things that's that's maybe a little bit different. I don't think the message has changed. I think the atmosphere has changed around the message and that has led, um, I think to some, some tricky times for, for, for a lot of young guys. Yeah. I, I, I was struck by something in one of your talks where you talked about penis arrogant versus penis positive Mm -hmm. or, or in contrast to that, because one of the things that I'm always trying to do is say, you know, we can be man positive or sort of male positive, but obviously while acknowledging male privilege, right. patriarchy, all of these sorts of harms right. in society. Um, so would, would, would you care to disambiguate a little bit of uh, what, what, your, your main point on that? Sure, yeah. Um, so I, I, I think the counterpoint to that, and I'll bring these all together, is that you know, one of the things I find myself saying a lot in classrooms today is not all masculinity is toxic masculinity, because I think, unfortunately, um, some guys and and also just some lots of people are getting a message that um, somehow masculinity in and of itself is toxic. Yeah. All right. And, and I don't believe that's true. Um, now, I think that when you're talking about what I call penis arrogance, this idea of that because I have a penis or because I identify as a man, and those aren't the same thing, obviously, um, that I am somehow on the top of the heap, and I am entitled to, um, I am entitled to all the privilege that comes with either that body or that identity, rather than acknowledging that I didn't do a thing to earn that privilege, and that and that I have a responsibility to, to. Um, think about that privilege and and work it and manage it and understand how it impacts my experience in the world and other people's experience. And I think that's penis pride is when you're when you're just feeling like, yeah, I really feel good about the body that I inhabit and the role that I inhabit in society. And I inhabit it not from a position of, you know, top dog, but but rather from a position of I recognize, a lot of things come to me um, in in ways that that maybe are easier or or maybe are less fraught than come to other people. And what am I going to do about that? How am I going to live in that world? Um, obviously, that's much more challenging for a young kid than to just feel like you know I won the lottery, right? <laughs> like I wound up in the right place at the right time in the right body, and wahoo! Um, and I think conveying those messages has to be done with a lot of compassion and empathy and sensitivity. Um, and, and at the same time, and this may seem sort of contradictory, but at the same time, uh, 
really holding people accountable. Yeah. Like, you know, you, I, I am not somebody who, um, who feels comfortable letting cisgender straight guys walk around puffed up with privilege that, that they didn't earn. Um, and I'm, 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 I'm not afraid to check that. Um, but again, what does that mean to check that with an adolescent, you know, with an adult, that's different, but with a kid who is still forming and a kid who any comment is, is going to be taken. Any comment may be taken really deeply and really personally and may have a profound impact on the trajectory of that kid's life. I remember messages that I got as an adolescent that for good or bad, absolutely shaped who I am and how I see myself and the way I put myself in the world. And um, so I have to be, be cognizant of, for all of my students, but, but in this case, since we're talking about the, the young men, um, specifically, you know, what, what kind of, um, what kind of path do I want to suggest or, or do I want to, do I want to offer as a path that is just and equitable and, um, loving and, and fulfilling? Um, that's a tall order, but, um, yeah, but that's, you know, that's what we have to do. That's those of us who have chosen to work with adolescents. Um, we got into it because we love kids of that age and we want them to, we see so much potential to become, and, uh, and I want them to become the most authentic, best people they can be. Yeah. And I, I, part of me really wants to get into inside baseball with you because you're here and, and you're a person I could talk to about this. Uh-huh. Um, but part of me doesn't want to get too much, but I am thinking about sort of these points you're making are so interesting. And so I'm thinking about, you know, um, Erickson and Piaget and mm. sort of all these models that these are abstract thinking ideas. Yeah. You know, but I'm also thinking like, what can we do? Or maybe you have an answer. What are you doing? You know, what can we do to, to maybe pave the way for that, even with younger learners? Because right. you're, you're in charge of nursery all the way through 12. Right. So is there a trajectory that we can take people through? Like, let's just talk about, you know, male privilege or, sure. or cis, cis male privilege. Sure. I, I want to believe like a six-year-old's probably not going to quite understand that concept. No. But can you get them ready so that when they're 13, they're going to understand that concept. Sure. And I think you do that by introducing, um, and you don't call it this, but you introduce concepts of gender equity with little kids. So when I, when I do a lesson with our three-year-olds, um, I brought in two different storybooks to read to them. One uh, was about a boy who wanted to be a princess. One was about a girl who didn't want to be a princess. And after I read the stories to them, I said, so who gets to be a princess? And they said, whoever wants to be a princess. And I said, does it matter if you're a boy or a girl? And they said, no, that's silly. And I thought, there you go. Okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's the lesson. And, and so from a simple thing like that, you then can build to, well, if anybody can be a princess because they want to be, then let's think about things like toys. And let's think about things like you know, the lining up in school. Let's think about these very practical day-to-day things that we encounter every day that we can bring awareness to. And uh, because if, if we can raise a generation of kids who have the assumption 
that um, that gender isn't hierarchical. Mm-hmm. Um, that there's no hierarchy uh, in in gender, then um, that would be a huge gift, and that will fundamentally change the way they relate and react to each other as adolescents. So, you know, it's it's um, gosh, I have a word for this, and I'm I'm blanking on it now. But it's I mean, they're kind of building blocks. It's 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 you know transitional skills so you you teach little if you want to teach kids safer sex when they're adolescents that's a lot easier if you've taught them to wash their hands and brush their teeth when they're preschoolers yeah right because lessons build on lessons yeah so, if you want to teach if you want to teach a, an adolescent about good consent it starts with the six-year-old exactly. and not just saying you have to kiss your grandmother even if you don't want to exactly yeah 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 so so you know how do we how do we look how are we talking about gender um, and, and masculinity specifically, really intentionally with these little kids for whom that language isn't even there yet, yeah. um, but but for whom every day they're walking into examples that are that are giving them information about who they are and what their place in the world is, and the more we can create equity in those situations, the more that equity becomes expected and normalized. Um, and I think that's what we want to do because too often, I think the problem with with masculinity is that we have to undo so much. Um, what's the opposite of equity? Unequity, disequity. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we have to yeah. undo the the the, um, the problematic messages that that we've internalized as men um, that we're not even aware of. And, and, you know, that's, that's the other thing that I think is so crucial when, when you're working with adolescents is, you know, if I'm working with an adult who's being really sexist, for example, um, I can have a general assumption that at some point in their life they heard about sexism and they may be, you know, but literally there are some kids who they have never considered or have never had the chance to unpack some of this stuff before. So that's a really um, profound moment when, when, you, when you have a conversation with a kid and you realize that you know, you're mad at them for something that they've done that seems really sexist or really out of line or, or really an example of, of, of you know, uh, abusing their privilege. And then you realize that they have never been called to, you know, recognize the water they swim in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I say, you know, the compassion and the empathy and the gentleness and the, the real education comes in. Um, and, and what that really comes down to is just showing them that there's a choice. There's another way to behave. There's another way to think about it. Um, and it's not my job to tell you how to behave or what to think, but it is my job to make sure you understand that the choices you make will have consequences and that those consequences can't, you know, they're going to have ripples and create a world. And what kind of world do you want and what kind of world are you creating and, and how are your actions um, forming that? And I think that those are conversations that you can have at every age and stage. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Now, you also mentioned that you, you do education with parents. Sure. And the other thing I'm thinking is, you know, so many of these lessons come from family of origin. Oh, yeah. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit to, you know, do you do you ever find yourself feeling that you might be sending children back to their family of origins with these radical new ideas? Or do you find yourself when you're educating parents? Like, are you, do you get more resistance from them or, or I guess? Yeah, I mean, I would say I don't. I don't get much resistance in the work that I do. And I, I'm very, I, I recognize how fortunate I am around that. And I think, again, it's because I work in a community that is, that already is open to this and is, is eager to hear some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but um, yeah, I think with it, when I'm talking to parents, you know, the, the first thing I have to do is make sure parents see me as an ally and not an adversary because I'm not a parent. And I always make that very clear when I talk to parents. So I'm not coming in with any kind of authority and saying, this is what I've done with my children and look at how great they've turned out. Um, I don't have kids. And that was, a, that was uh, partly a choice I made and partly the circumstances of my life. But, um, but that doesn't mean that I don't, I, you know, um, I often say to, say to parents, you know, if, you, if, you, if your sink is broken, you know, you're going to call a plumber because they know what they're doing, right? Well, I'm an expert in children, so I'm an education. I'm an educator. I I know this stuff, so I want to help you, help them. Um, but yeah, I think because again, you don't want to say to parents, you've already screwed up this kid, right? It's you know, yeah. now now your work is to undo all the stuff you've done in the first whatever years of life. No, it's to say, you know, how do you as a parent become aware of your own. Um, the messages you've internalized. How do you think about the way you're conveying this? Um, often unintentionally, mm -hmm. you know, the intentional stuff. They're pretty clear on what they're trying to do, but all the unintentional stuff. And then, how do you help them think about conveying this stuff to their kids when they feel really ill-equipped? You know, and, and I think something I've been saying a lot, and it's not mine, it comes from Debbie Rothman, who's an amazing sexuality educator, is that it's so much better to have 100 one-minute talks with your kids than one 100-minute talk. Mm -hmm. And so part of my job is to like help parents practice these little one-minute talks and to say, look, you can do that. And and now, you know, so I, you know, we've practiced three or four here, now go and figure out three or four more, you know, and and build up that, that, bag of one minute talks that you can that you can go back to and you can use to um to help your kid become the best person they can be and, and there is conflict there because you know you're absolutely dealing sometimes with with i mean every parent loves their kid wants their kid to be successful wants their kid to have every advantage um and sometimes with with parents of boys, you know, I have to say to them, I get it. You want your son to have every advantage. Um, he's got some advantages that he didn't earn. And we've got to help him see that. And that's not to say that he gets anything taken away. But, but by acknowledging that, hopefully, he's able to make space in the world for other people to have 
you know, it's 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 not a sum zero total. He doesn't lose because somebody else gains. Yeah, um, that's but a those hard are lesson. those are hard conversations. Yeah, and I'm actually thinking about how much of this is is probably mired in shame. Oh gosh, uh, I I was I was I was I was somewhere in New York and I was on a panel and and somebody asked me something about shame and I said if you're working if you're working with men on masculinity and you're not working with shame you're you, you're not. You don't, you know, you're not doing your job. Oh yeah, <laughs> basically. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think it's really true. One of the things that I say all the time is that you know, men are so fragile, <laughs> um, and I think especially, especially straight men, um, are really fragile because if think about it, if you have been brought into a world where so much of it is geared to you, so much of it um, comes with, and I wouldn't say without effort because that's that's. Um, that's disingenuous and it's disrespectful, but where just so much of it is oriented to you, um, you may not have ever realized the the kind of experience uh, that's not like that. Um, and and when confronted with that, it's very easy to feel defensive and shameful and upset um, and angry. And, and and so many of those big emotions that 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 I see in adolescent boys are are f- born out of this real fragility, um, where where part of their their understanding of the world is starting to crumble a little bit, mm-hmm. and of course that's terrifying. And so, you know, again, how do we compassionately and empathetically and lovingly um, say to those kids? Yeah, what you're seeing is real. That's actually true. And and you are strong. And maybe that strength is a little bit different than what you thought it was. Maybe the strength isn't from just being able to overpower or just being able to, you know, bulldoze your way through. Or maybe maybe your strength is not in your lack of emotion. Um, but, you know, it it needs to be needs to be put forth you know you spoon feed that stuff you don't you don't (laughs) smack people in the face with that that's way too much well and i'm thinking of one of the ways that i always talk about toxic masculinity but just let's just say normative masculinity as you know um a damoclean sword is that it 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 does all the things you're saying and it teaches young men and, and older men not to be equipped then to deal with those powerful emotions. Right. So basically it discourages you from dealing with the powerful emotions. And then when faced with the powerful emotions, you have no toolkit. Right. 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 And so, yeah, I, I, I really, what you're saying with me really, really resonates with me that we need to approach with empathy. And that doesn't mean excusing no. patriarchy or excusing misogyny. It doesn't mean that it means understanding that, it means validating the experiences of these men in the moment, but right. also having the strength to say, okay, but let's look at the bigger picture. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's absolutely a yes. And yeah, again, you validate and, and you, and you reframe. Um, there was a young, young boy that I worked with. This was years ago. I, I put this story in my book um, and he'd been going out with a girl for a couple of years and, and they broke up and he came into my classroom and he was just, he was clearly so, reeling from the breakup and this was his first love and his first sweetheart and and he sat down and he said I just don't know what to do and I said well have you like you're really upset aren't you and he said yeah and I said well have you cried about this yet 
He said, oh, no, all my friends tell me I need to just like tough it out and I need to. And I said, do you feel sad? He said, yeah. I said, why don't you cry about it a little bit? And he burst into tears and, you know, he sobbed for a little bit at his desk. And when it was all over, I said, look, you know, you're still here. You're still whole, but you've been able to move some of that sadness, you know, and that that being able to access that and being able, having permission to do this very, you know, unmanly thing turns out to be a great strength. Um, and, and he just looked at me and he said, you know, nobody told me I could do that. And I thought, you know, how have we failed this, this poor little guy <laughs> who's having this very normal adolescent experience and, and, we, you know, we've not shared with him one of the most important tools <laughs> for dealing with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm also thinking about the other, the other fragility of masculinity, which is the, the necessity to constantly perform it oh, yeah. and the, the way in which masculinity itself is so fragile in that one can lose it so easily. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, all kinds of examples of maybe the, the famous athlete, the star jock, and then something's revealed that, mm -hmm. that, that emasculates them. And now suddenly all of that is gone. Yeah. How did that happen? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And is it really gone? And well, right. And yeah. Right. And I, I think that that's part of the, that's part of the challenge and part of the education is what is it that's been taken away? It's, mm -hmm. it's the facade that's been taken away. Um, and that wasn't, that that may not have been all that helpful in the long run anyway. Yeah. Uh, Short-term helpful, long-term maybe not. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, um, and I, you know, I, I also have to, have to say, and I think this is interesting, um, being, being somebody who's gay and, and, you know, a man and an educator is that like, I, I think part of why I can see this is that I never bought into that. It's like I, I never had the chance to, right? I was cut out of the, the dude kingdom a long time ago. You know, mm -hmm. you know, any, I think, I think when a man, um, acknowledges and takes pride in being gay, that there is this supposition that he's like turned in his man card in lots of ways. Um, and while I don't think that's true, I, I absolutely think that it has so informed and shaped my perspective on masculinity and on what it is to be a man and on what kind of man I want to be and what kind of man I want to model for my students um, that sometimes I have to remind myself that for, for some of these young guys, um, you know, they are still so steeped in something that I, that I saw and, and actually, uh, I guess I saw it afterwards, that, that I was sort of kicked out of and then realized, oh, I didn't want to be in that anyway. Um, <laughs> so, so I think that's another, um, another interesting perspective that I bring. And I think, um, you know, working with, there are some young guys who, who, who don't give me much credit, you know, because of who I am mm -hmm. and because I'm just because I am who I am and I'm, and I'm open about that. Um, but I've been very, very surprised at how some of the, you know, jockeyest, manliest, toughest guys um, in my classrooms have um, 
in, in, in being in my class and in, in being able to have real honest conversations with me, um, have walked away, um, with a big perspective shift and have said to me, you know, I, I, I never thought that I would, um, you know, that I would relate to you the way I do, or I never thought I would, I would, I never thought like you'd be my favorite teacher or some words like that. Um, and so I find that interesting. And I think that, that, um, um, that I'm all, I'm, so part of what I'm always looking for is, you know, who are the cisgender straight guys who are also doing this work so well? I want to know more of them. I want to see how they're doing it. I want to compare how what they're doing and what I do, um, uh, you know, where are the ways we overlap and where, what, what can I learn from, from those guys and what can they learn from me? Um, I recently uh, had a chance at my school to do a training for all of our coaches. Um, and so, you know, anytime, anytime the gay guy gets access to the athletic program, that's, that's really cool and daunting and terrifying and, um, and thrilling. Um, and just like telling my story of being a sissy kid who never was invited to play sports and got, got teased when I did, um, was, was really informational for some, for some guys. Um, and you know, our school has a, a really clear sense that homophobia is uncool and not okay and and that um uh and yet of course it exists you know because it exists everywhere um so i just think that's an interesting dynamic that that goes into part of the way i think about it's hard for me to think about being a man myself without thinking about being a gay man um and uh and so thinking about how that uh, influences the the work that I do and the way that I do my work has is is always in my head um, as a piece of the the puzzle. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about um, well, when you when you say you know being a sissy boy, I'm also thinking about the the way in which not all but so much homophobia is is femphobia. Oh yes, and 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 um, and I'm also thinking about CJ um, CJ Pasco's book. Dude, you're a fag. Oh yes, where she yes, sort yes. of talks about the the use of that word, mm-hmm. and that, and that it it's it is always homophobic by the nature of the word, but it's also used in this way that's not really about whether the, about the person's orientation. Right, it's about their effeminacy. Yep, and that that's the real the real crime. Mm-hmm. Sure, because there is no greater crime, according to some men, than yeah. being a woman. Yeah, you know, and 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 just even even making that assumption clear. To, to adolescents, even uh, helping them shed light on that, um, which is one of those assumptions, one of those unchecked assumptions that they may have grown up with without it ever being verbalized. And, and if you can get them on their own to sort of walk up to that and look at it, then they think, well, I don't want to be that way. I don't really think that, or do I? Um, and then there's room for growth and there's room for discussion and and then there's there's opportunity for empathy for for other people to develop and yeah so i think i think absolutely addressing the the you know you can't address masculinity without addressing femininity you know in in the, and that's a really binary way to look at it um but i think that's true because i think a lot of masculinity is bound up in the binary and 
a man who has has a wider awareness of gender identity and a, and a wider awareness of the array of sexual and romantic orientation, you know, possibilities out there, um, is less likely, I think, to be to be so um, instinctively um, uh, anti anti-feminist, anti, anti-woman, anti, anti-feminine. Um, I think, uh, at least that's, I think that's my experience. I think rings true to that. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, and that's where, um, taking us a little bit back to where we started, that's where I was sort of thinking about, you know, I, I want to believe that there's, there's some hope there that adolescents today, right. younger people today, do certainly have across the board, a greater awareness of the, the plurality of sexualities, of orientations. And it makes me want to think that they can make that leap a little more quickly. I mean, I know, you know, I mean, my, my, my story is sort of growing up in a very white, hetero, um, normative city in uh, a suburban town in Florida, you know, with no uh, out queer people, though mm-hmm. there were certainly queer people, just not out queer people. Um, and then it, engaging in some of that teenage adolescent play around sort of anti-fem anti-feminine play mm-hmm. it i remember it hitting me like a load of bricks when i sort of was forced to say wait a minute oh yeah why was i doing that mm-hmm. you know and so but i'm thinking and i didn't know anything then right. i, I want to be hopeful that young men today or young people today at least know a little bit more maybe that transition could be a little smoother I think that's. I don't know. Yeah, are are well, we just think, being Pollyannish? No, I think I think there's some truth to that. I think, um, you know, I well, I think that being aware that there's a wider range of things, but then internalizing what that means are two different things. So I think absolutely, adolescents have much more awareness of of the range of identities that they're going to bump up against and experience in their lives whether they've done the the work of thinking what does that actually mean mm-hmm. and and um and what does that mean for for the way I'm going to put myself in the world um I think that's the work we always have to keep doing uh because because even though the the awareness of the identities is there uh the, a lot of folks are still coming to it with all of those unspoken assumptions and unwritten rules that they were, that they were socialized to. Um, you know, I, I saw Jackson Katz speak not long ago at St. Joe's University, and he, he said this really interesting thing that has stuck with me and that I've been talking about with my classes, and it's the classic, you know, pyramid of, of oppression and, um, and how, how small things build to bigger things. But he really talked about how that bottom layer of the pyramid, all of those unchecked assumptions and cultural norms and unspoken rules um, are the first thing that sets the stage for sexual violence, and which is what he was talking about. And that if, if we put our attention there and create some cracks in some of that foundation layer, you know, uh, we're really being much more proactive in this, in this work than if we're only looking at the top of the pyramid and being reactive to instances of violence and oppression when they appear. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I've really been trying to think about in my own curriculum, what am I doing to make sure I'm acknowledging in some way 
those, you know, the bottom level assumptions in my school, in our families, in, in our houses of worship, in our government, you know, just all of that. And I think that, I think politically today, it's, we have such an opportunity to look at the, because the assumptions are, you know, with this administration are so overt, like they just put it out there. They're mm. not, they're not hiding it anymore. Um, and so we really get to look at that and, uh, and we can use that as a way of, of saying, well, if that's the foundation level that you start with, what then, what can you build on top of that? What kind of structure um, arises from that? Um, and so in the same way with, with adolescence, when we talk about sexuality, if we, start, if we start out with the foundation that it's a really positive aspect of life and not something to be feared or something to be controlled or contained, you know, what kind of house do we build? Um, so if I am hopeful... No, the place where I am hopeful is that um, there are more and more people who are interested in looking at that and talking about that. And I think a lot of the Me Too movement has been instrumental in getting us not just to look at the instances of sexual violence in our culture, but the bottom layers of assumptions that cause that house to be built that way. Um, And that's certainly work that I think all of us who are doing um, sexuality education, but I think all of us who are working with adolescents really need to be conscious of um, and, and to in some way be interacting with. Yeah, I, I think about that. I, that's a really, I, I like that visualization of it. I think about that a lot when I think about um, talking to anybody, but particularly talking to men about consent yeah. and and thinking about that this is not the first time you should have this kind of conversation when you're in a hot state, when you're about to have right. sex or engage in some kind of sexual behavior, but that you need to you need to set the stage for that with other conversations, even preferably not in sexual context. Right. And when I and and when I when I often talk to my students about this, I say, look, if you're going out for Chinese food with your friends or you're going out for food with your friends and you negotiate where you're going and you think about, okay, well, here's what I want to eat. Here's, here's the mood that I'm in. I'm gluten free. I'm vegan, whatever. Like these conversations, people don't usually have a lot of trouble advocating for themselves. And so we kind of have some of that built into our social norms. Right. But then when we get to these sexual situations, all these other norms and rules and, and inexperience and all of this come into play. And so like I, I think about sort of right. marrying those things. Yeah, and it, it's because we don't think about those everyday conversations about food or about what we're going to do for the evening as dealing with consent. But of course they are. I mean, I'm doing a lot of work now uh, talking about everyday consent. And, you know, what are the ways where we're having consent conversations all the time? And I think, I think just as you said, one of the reasons that sexual consent often feels so weird is that we don't have other contexts where we're cognizant of consent, um, where we're negotiating consent, but we are all the time. And so again, the more awareness we can bring to that, the more then we can say, so when you're moving into a sexual situation, you already have skills and strategies and and comfort levels and strengths and places where you're not so strong. And, and being able to know that you're so much more well-informed going into a conversation, going into a sexual situation, if you've thought about that and if you've practiced consent deliberately in these other um, other areas of your everyday life. And 
I think that's that's exactly um, that bottom level Jackson Katz thing that that I'm talking about because you know making consent more aware in our everyday lives affects the kind of house we're going to build when it comes to sexual um, matters and it's not going to solve all the problems in any sense mm-hmm. but um, what a what a helpful tool it can be for young people if and and how important it is for we as adults who work with young people to be really um, deliberate uh, uh, and naming consent situations when they occur and saying, look, you just were in a consent situation. Let's look at that. Now, what can we take from that and how can we then apply that to these other situations? Um, I, that's some of the most exciting work that, that I'm doing today. And, you know, I, I don't, I'm sure that work uh, dovetails with with all the gender stuff that we've been talking about and the masculinity stuff we've been talking about. But right now it seems to me is just so important that everybody hears it all the time. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm getting to the place of, of beginning to figure out how that how that messaging might hit somebody who identifies as a man versus somebody who identifies as something else. Um, so there's a lot more work to do there, but it's a really exciting time to be to be having those conversations. And I think especially like those conversations have been happening in colleges for a long time, but they're not happening in high school. And now they're starting to, and that is so exciting because you know, how many generations of kids have we graduated from high school without really having um, conversations and, and practice around consent. Um, And so of course, when they get to college, Things don't always go the way, the best way they can. Um, that's a another really another place for hope. Yeah, um, that good stuff is happening. I think of it as self-efficacy building. Yes, you know everything you were saying. Just I, I thought to myself, yes, it's building self-efficacy, right. and which is so necessary to behavior change, sure. as we all know. Sure. Um, so I wanted to. Let's not make this a huge sort of tangent, I guess, but I was really curious when I introduced you um, that you have a theology degree and then you have the sexuality degree. And you've mentioned, I've heard in your talks in in your book, you you sort of talk about spirituality as a really important dimension of this. And so if if you're interested in speaking to this, I'd love to hear a little bit about sort of how you tie those things together. Sure. Um, Personally, uh, I'm somebody who... um, my world doesn't make a lot of sense without a spiritual and actually a religious dimension to it. Um, partly because of the way I was raised, partly because of the way uh, of my early models of thinking about life and the world. Um, and, and certainly one of the, one of the key moments in my early life was, um, being a, uh, sort of a super religious kid um, and buying into, you know, a lot of what that meant, and then realizing I was gay, and and hearing that those two things weren't supposed to exist together, and uh, starting this quest, which really was my quest through through college with my theology degree, to say, oh no, they have to reconcile in some way because I can't I can't imagine my life without either of them. Um, and so that's my own process, and and uh, I believe I came out of that process with a with a much um, a much more developed and and in some ways nuanced sense of both my 
sense of a, being a spiritual and religious person and being a and being a gay person. Um, the way that the way that works in my in my work today is, you know, I'm really aware that, um, you know, not everybody I'm talking to has has that dimension in their life. Not everybody wants that dimension. That's not my job. Um, but I do think that that um, asking people to consider what you know, what are the um, what's out there beyond you that moves you or that directs you or that you orient yourself to, whatever that is. Um, because I do believe that for most people, there is something like that in their lives. And it might be other people, it might be community, it might be, it might be, it might be law, it might be family, um, but there is some value or some idea or entity bigger than themselves that they draw from. Um, and I think that's really important because that moves us away from this complete self-interest and hedonism and and I think a lot of the problems that we have, especially around sexuality today and, and um, stem from a, a real basic sense of self-importance and not enough of, of having a wider view. Um, so I'm not afraid to, to, to open that up in my, in my work. Um, but I am really cognizant that, that my particular spiritual slash religious journey is, um, is, is my own and, and, and has informed my work and my world, but that's not, that's not for everybody. Um, but I, you know, I've, I've often joked that, as a sexuality educator, it's like a thousand times easier to be a gay man than to be a religious man in the field. <laughs> um, because, because I've had to, and I haven't really experienced um, discrimination, but I certainly have experienced um, the, the, the eyebrow raise and the surprise when, when I talk about that as an important aspect of, of who I am and how it informs the work that I do. Yeah, I have to admit, when I learned uh, <laughs> of Bill Staten's background, mm -hmm. I was surprised. Yeah. I mean, it's it's wonderful. His his article about um, what is it the the idea of the eroticism of of the the universal eroticism yes. or something like that. It's wonderful <laughs> stuff. But I was I was surprised. Mm -hmm. I have to admit. Yeah. So my last question is um, the, the the same question for every episode. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you would have liked me to ask you? Such a great question, and I, I get it a lot, and I'm always, I always need to take a second when I get it. Um, uh, I guess maybe one of the things I thought we might talk about is just, you know, like my and our own relationship with, with other men in our lives. Um, um, uh, one of the things that I am aware of and need always to be to be thinking about is um because of of the way i grew up and because um because of my um my early experiences with with uh with other boys um being you know being teased and being called fag way early and that kind of stuff um you know when i look at my my circle of my really close friends 
Um, one of the things that is always striking is that there aren't any straight men in it. Um, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. And I think that's a loss. And, um, and I think there are many, uh, many cisgender uh, straight guys that I love and admire and learn from and, and, um, and, uh, um, and respect and admire, but, um, but my back's always up, you know? And, <laughs> and I, and I, I, I think admitting that is really important and it's, you know, I, it's not that I fundamentally distrust or dislike, but, but, you know, those early experiences matter and they stay with you for a really, you know, for a really long time. And they really do inform the way we are in the world, the way we orient in the world. And, um, and I wonder what it, I often wonder what it would be like to have been more included in that group earlier on and what that would have done to the trajectory of my life. Um, and I'll never know that, you know, it's a completely hypothetical what if kind of question. Um, but I think it's good for all of us to, to just take a step and sort of think about, um, especially those of us that, that, that are educators and, and that are working with young people and that are in some ways, you know, seen as rightly or wrongly as role models, um, that we're really clear where we come from and, and where we stand and what influences that so that we're not blinded by things that could um, impact our ability to relate to our students in the most honest and authentic ways, you know? So, you know, I'm not somebody who shows up at a lot of sports games at school. You know, I show up at plays and at concerts mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, and kids know that. And I, I'm, and I, I'm not afraid to talk about that. Um, and I think, and I think people can have whatever reaction they have to that, but, but that's a piece of honesty and a piece of authenticity that I have to acknowledge in my work with young men and around masculinity is that I'm not coming to, I'm not coming to this from any kind of neutral perspective. I've got a, I've got a really um, strong uh, bias is the wrong word, but I've, I, you know, I, I, I'm not coming at this from the same place as everybody else. Um, and I think that's important to acknowledge and to then, and that it's my responsibility to figure out what that, what that means. Um, but I think any of us who are doing this work have to, no matter what our gender, no matter what our orientation, have to really ask that question of like, where have you come from? And, and how is that trajectory influencing the way you are doing this work that you're doing? Um, yeah, I think that, yeah, that, that's, that's so interesting. That is a, that is a part of the discussion that would be great to have. And for reasons that are different from yours, I also find myself very seldom having circles yeah. of friends that include <laughs> a lot of cis straight men. Mm -hmm. And so I think this may be one of those Jahari window kind of things. Like yeah. this is an, an unknown unknown. Yeah. So I didn't bring it up because it's not really part of my experience either. But you're right. It's an mm -hmm. important part of experience for so many men and people who care about men. And, yeah. and, and masculinity ties into that in so many interesting ways. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Sure. And thank you for your time. 
it's been terrific. This I really enjoyed talking with you. We've we've really gotten into some great theoretical stuff tonight. Um, <laughs> yeah. So thanks thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. Thanks. Talk Like a Man is affiliated with the Men's Center for Growth and Change, a Philadelphia-based nonprofit organization whose mission is to help men and boys realize their full potential to love and positively connect with others. For more information, please visit menscenterphilly.org. To find out more about the Talk Like a Man project, visit talklikeaman.net.